Welcome to the Greenbelt Project, where we bring the Iowa Greenbelt to life. The Greenbelt Project is brought to you by the Ellsworth College Foundation and Time Citizen Communications. This show is sponsored by Iowa Falls State Bank, member FDIC, and Hanson Family Hospital. Your host for today's show is Quinn Groen. Good morning, it's Gwen Grown from the Ellsworth College Foundation. I am here with Darwin Miller. Uh, this is our first interview of many segments with Darwin for the Greenbelt Project. I am super excited to have him with us. He has been involved in Ellsworth in so many different facets of his life. And so this is gonna be a multiple segment interview that we get to share with you. So Darwin, thank you so much for being with us today. Let's just start off and tell me a little bit about yourself. I grew up on a farm five miles east of Iowa Falls. Farming has been very important in my family's life. In fact, uh, we go back to my, when my great-great-grandfather immigrated to this country and homesteaded south of Ackley in 1854 and succeeding generations were, were always farmers. In my family, in addition to my parents, we, uh, I had one brother who was 11 years older than I, and so there were just two children in that family. He got married when he was 19, and I was eight years old at the time, so in some ways, we were raised as, as single children. We, um, in addition to farming crops, we had a lot of livestock. We uh, milked about 20 cows, barrel and finished hogs, fed out cattle, and we also had 300 laying hens. And of course, if we go back to the 50s, this was a time when we did not have slatted floors, we did not have automation as far as feeding equipment and so forth. And so needless to say, I, I grew up spending a lot of time at the uh, hard end of a pitchfork and p uh, pitching uh, manure into a manure spreader because we had solid floors and used bedding at that time, and so uh, it was very labor intensive. The summertime was a, a beehive of activity in the country when I was growing up. Farmers were cultivating corn. We still cultivated at that time. We did not have the, the herbicides that we do today. Of course. Uh, we baled a lot of hay because everybody had livestock, and it was the square bales that you loaded on a rack and fortunately we had hay balers then um, so that along with combining oats and baling straw walking beans yes by hand all those things were quite labor intensive and and so summertime was a very very busy time news to say uh, i didn't get to go to the pool uh, like a lot of the town kids did in the summertime so but on the other hand it was a very good life my parents were very hardworking people. Uh, both of them had grown up before electricity and before uh, hay balers and so forth. So they milked a lot of cows by hand, picked corn by hand, shocked oats. Very, very hardworking people. And they also valued education because both of them, growing up during the Depression, were not able to go to high school. They'd gone to country schools, they were several miles from town, and the only way that you got to go to high school during their era is if you moved to a town and stayed with a relative. Okay. They had dirt roads, transportation was an issue, they didn't have school buses in the rural communities. 
And so uh, both of them, after the eighth grade, stayed on the farm working and they also worked out for, for neighbors and family. Sure. And so, uh, again, very hard, very hard working people. And so our lives revolved around faith, family, and farming. Yeah. In that order. And they, um, I guess one of the greatest gifts they gave to me was the fact that uh, they had a strong work ethic and, and that carried over. And yeah. so uh, I give them credit for, for having a strong work ethic in addition to many other things. Sure. So you mentioned um, the depression and I'm sure that, you know, we talk about hard times now, but I'm right. sure that is probably nothing in comparison. They were very conservative people, and part of the reason why was because when they grew up during the Depression, they would always say there was no money. Right. There just was no money. And they would share stories of my grandfather sitting on the, the, the porch steps, contemplating on whether or not to sell hogs because right. they were so cheap, but yet he needed every dime he could. Right. Yet. And so uh, a lot of those things uh, that happened during the Depression were also impressed upon me. Yeah. And so, you know, as I look back, I was very blessed to have that type of upbringing. And so my parents were believers in education. They had not been able to go to high school or college, but they were believers in education. Wanted me to be able to have an education that they were not able to have. Yeah. And so they were supportive that way. Growing up, uh, because we lived down the country and had a lot of chores, uh, I was kind of limited on my after-school activities. Right. Not that I was athletically inclined, but uh, there were limits there, obviously. And and uh, the thing I uh, that they did support was Boag and FFA. Yeah, yeah. And so I was able to take Boag as a freshman all the way through my senior year of high school, and also FFA. My Voag instructor at that time was a man by the name of Joe White. Oh, Joe. went on to Dalesworth College. But I had him all four years in high school as my Voag instructor and really impressed upon, upon us that you can be anything you want to be if you're willing to work hard and achieve that. And so he was a person who had confidence in you, even though I was a raw farm boy. Uh, he was my mentor, and, and I have to give him so much credit for the way my career turned out. Yeah. And so um, I did get active in FFA and was fortunate to be a chapter district instead of FFA officer. Uh, growing up, my intentions at that time were to graduate from high school and farm, uh, join my brother and, and father in farming. My parents had bought another farm that my brother was farming, and so uh, that was my intent. But several things were happening at that time. As we entered the, the late 60s and, and early 70s, agriculture was rapidly changing. It was taking more land to support a family. And I had gotten interested in FFA and the things that Joe had done for me, and I got thinking about being able to pass that on yeah. to uh, other students that they could benefit the way I had benefited yeah. from nice. going in FFA. Yeah, I, you know, I've heard uh, from Kevin Butt um, neat things about Joe White. And of course, we have had the pleasure of getting to know his daughter, Chris, very well, who is a, an extraordinary artist, which is just a side note in Clear Lake. But 
I'm just going to step back a minute because you said you had 300. Or were they laying hens? Laying hens, that's correct. So how many eggs did you get? Well, the average chicken will produce a little over 300 eggs a year. Oh they, they do have a break there where they molt and so uh, egg production goes down. Yeah. But the eggs were kind of my, my mother's project. My father and I would clean out the hen house every Saturday. She was the one who, my mother was the one who gathered the eggs, cleaned them, and then she would case them. And then once a week, the egg man would come <laughs> sure. and load these eggs up out of the basement, and then they would leave her an egg check for the previous week's pickup. And that egg money is what she used to buy groceries, and she would also buy clothes for us kids, and then she would also have some leftover spending money. Sure. So that was kind of her her project. Yeah. And uh, and obviously we milked and so my uh, we, we got a milk check every two weeks and right. that's kind of how uh, the family was supported on a cash flow basis. Yeah. Do you remember how much eggs cost back then? You know, I really don't. But my best recollection would probably be somewhere in the forty to fifty cents a dozen oh neighborhood. Isn't that, and so, then what here not too long ago we were paying seven dollars a dozen? It's crazy, yes. Yeah. And so yeah, obviously we were on a different <laughs> a different rate of inflation and value at that time. Yeah. So my interest really in, in, in education kind of peaked. However, during my high school years, as I mentioned, I was applying to, to Goldman Farm, so I did not take my high school education as seriously as I should. Yeah. Even though my parents were encouraging me to, uh, I got A's and VOAG and probably C, C pluses and everything else. And at that time, in order to go to a university, you had to have a fairly high ACT score, which uh, I, I did not take that test as seriously as I should. Right. And my high school ranking would not have gotten me into the door of a university at that time. And during my senior year of high school, my parents had informed me that they would not start me farming unless I went to Ellsworth for a couple of years to at least get a couple of years of college education. Sure. So all of a sudden, um, that was an alarm. <laughs> and, and so, uh, of course, being a local, I, I went ahead and applied for Ellsworth and uh, graduated from high school. Ellsworth had to take me because I was a local and that was part of the, the community college you know, system at right. that time. So I graduated from high school in 1968 and I started at Ellsworth College in the fall of 68. And I realized that it was important for me to take that seriously, to, to go to class every day. I had some high school friends that had also gone to Ellsworth and a couple of them did not take it as seriously. and thought we ought to should go out and just ride around in the car. But I, I kept my nose to the grindstone, went to class and did what I was supposed to do. And, and I guess the eye-opening thing for me was is that if I studied, I could be competitive in class. Sure. And, and so it gave me, Ellsworth gave me the confidence that I could succeed in college. And so, uh, and during that freshman year, of college, that was, that was the year I was a state of officer, which most state officers are. You're a chapter, you're your chapter officer during high school, and perhaps a district officer, which I was, and then you run for a state office about the time that you graduate sure. from high school. 
So uh, again, being a state officer and, and, and getting the confidence from speaking in front of groups and so forth, and also increase my desire to, to want to be an ag teacher and uh, also work with students on, in FFA leadership. Yeah. And so that got me to Ellsworth, and of course Ellsworth was close. I, I gotta admit, I went to Ellsworth because it was obviously a good school and a respected school, but also it was five miles from home. I could live at home and I still had some livestock of my own yep. that I was raising. And of course the tuition at that time was about $200 a semester. <laughs> So I could basically cash flow that. Right. I didn't have to borrow any money. Yes. Uh, my first two years because of that. And as I look back in those years of Ellsworth, I was blessed to have some instructors that really were, were great people and encouraging students, working with you, always had time to answer your questions. Uh, some of those that really come to mind are Dick Larson, Sujit Dar, yes. Raza Rizvi, they, they, Bill Schmidt was another one, and so I was very blessed to have uh, teachers like that, especially in the sciences area, because I was taking pre-agriculture, and agriculture is a science. Yeah. And so I took some pretty hardcore courses, zoology, biology, chemistry, algebra, trigonometry, statistics. Wow. I mean, you had to study, obviously, right. and uh, but on the other hand, Ellsworth helped me develop those study skills, and I learned to take notes. And if someone would have told me I would be studying all night for a semester exam, I would have back when I was in high school, I would have said they were crazy. Right. But you know, once you get into it and realize that you need to do well, you know, you'll do whatever it takes. Sure. That's the other thing I learned is that you, you do whatever it takes. Yeah, yeah. So in those years, did uh, Ellsworth, did they have dormitories here then? At the time that I was a student here, the only dormitory we had was Waldorm. It was built a few years before I enrolled here as a freshman. At that time, enrollment was very high. We were, I believe, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,100 students. Wow. And there was two reasons, actually three reasons for that. The first one was we were the baby boomer generation. Right. You know, we were we were the ones born in that post-World War II era. Right. So that was a factor. And another one was the Vietnam War was going on. And so I have to say that there were some students who came to Ellsworth because uh, they could get a draft permit. Right. And would not get drafted at that time. And then thirdly, we had a lot of GIs who had been discharged from the service coming back and utilizing their, their college benefits sure. from the service the GI Bill. Yep, yep. And so all of those things combined provided a real high enrollment at that time. The male students would find off-campus housing. There were a lot of people in town who, because of that demand and need, mm -hmm. finished off their basements. Oh. To apartments, student apartments. And so you would have groups of two or three students living in someone's finished off basement. Yeah. And so that, that was really the only alternative. We did not have uh, Reg Johnson Hall or the Mass Science Building. 
we did have Bullock Jones because that's the oldest building on campus, and we had New Main. And then um, Caroline Hall was still standing at that time. Okay. So chemistry was on the third floor, so I spent a lot of time <laughs> up there. And then also all rings classes were held in Bullock Jones. Uh, psych was held on the second level of, of Caroline Hall. The lower level had been uh, renovated into an art department. Oh, all right. And so uh, in our, our lectures for biology and zoology were in the Hamilton Auditorium in New Maine. We had lap boards. And so when you walked into the auditorium, you went up to the stage, picked up a lap board, and found a seat, and you took your notes on a lap board. Oh my gosh, okay. So, obviously much different, and, and we just didn't have the resources. I was thinking of Caroline Hall, that's my first recollection of Ellsworth College. Uh, as a youngster growing up, I went to country school for kindergarten and first grade. Yep. And this was the, the typical one-room country school, but we did have an oil-burning furnace, and we did have, we did not have running water. Uh, water was brought in, drinking water was brought in, and we had outhouses, which wasn't all that uncommon. I don't think we had an indoor plumbing on the farm until I was in the eighth grade, so sure. you know, that, that wasn't anything strange. But then they started closing the country schools in the mid-50s, and so then I came to school in Isle Falls as a second grader, and I went to what's now called North Elementary. It was called Blanche Stoddard back then. Okay. And what now is Rock Run Elementary okay. was the high school, and there was not a, a cafeteria there. And so for lunch, our teacher would walk us over to the lower level of Caroline Hall. And that's where we would have lunch. Okay. And so they were, there was kind of staggered shifts on, uh, on dining between the elementary, high school, and, and the college. Of course, at that time, there were only a couple hundred students right. at Ellsworth. And also at that time, Ellsworth was part of the Iowa Falls School District. Okay. And it became a part of the Iowa Falls School District in, in 1928 and continued that way until the Iowa Community College System was developed in the late 60s. Oh my gosh, I, I don't, do not remember so that. So we had teachers that taught not only high school classes but also college classes at Ellsworth. Sure. And. Even in junior high, my seventh grade science teacher was John Sullivan, who was the Ellsworth football coach at that time. Okay. And then my eighth grade science teacher was Jim Carey, who was a basketball Great. coach at, at, at Ellsworth, and, and in fact, later on, had a national championship. Marty Dittmer was my PE teacher <laughs> in junior high. And now you have coffee with and him. And now I have coffee with him on Wednesday mornings. And so, yeah, it was, it was obviously a different world, and and uh, some of the instructors we may have had in high school, we, then we also had at Ellsworth in a higher level class, sure. obviously. So, but that, yeah, Caroline Hall was my first, first recollection. By the time I'd gotten to high school, and it was still the old high school, yep. and we still didn't have a cafeteria there, and so by the time I got to high school, then they had re-renovated and built on the new main and so the the lower level of new main was a cafeteria okay uh, during junior high of course we had our own cafeteria because that building was further away sure okay. so uh, but by the time i got to high school then 
they had moved the cafeteria to the lower level of New Main, and obviously it was a lot newer and nicer. Yeah, so your history about Ellsworth is amazing to me. Growing up, I guess, I should start there, was it Ellsworth College, was it Ellsworth Junior College, was it Ellsworth Community College? When I was growing up, it was Ellsworth Junior College. Okay. And it went from Ellsworth College to Ellsworth Junior College in 1928 when Ellsworth ceased to be a private institution and became part of the Isle Falls School District. And that was very common. Eagle Grove had a junior college. Fort Dodge had a junior college. And so that was a very common system where uh, the community college was part of the local school district. And it wasn't until the development of the Iowa Community College system where area boundaries were drawn up, boards were elected, and then the junior college separated from the local school district and became an individual entity okay. or part of the area community college system. Sure. Okay. So then when Ellsworth was Ellsworth College, is that when they were four-year? It was a four-year institution between like 1910 is when um, Ellsworth became a four-year college. Okay. Prior to that, it started out as an academy, which was kind of a, a glorified high school okay. at that time. Of course, this is 1890. Right. So it was an academy, and and, and of course, students stayed here. They There were residence halls on campus. Distance was such a big factor back then. They, they had poor roads, they had dirt roads right. that were, were impassable during several times of the year. And really the only way to, to travel was by train as far as dependable sure. travel of any distance. Right, right. I can remember my, uh, my father telling me the story. He was born in 1916 and his mother had a serious health issue and so he was born in Marshalltown in a hospital in Marshalltown. And so his father would travel by train to visit them in Marshalltown because wow. it was really the only dependable dependable way to get there, yeah. especially in the spring when we have spring rains and right. muddy dirt roads. And they didn't have ditches yeah. back then either, so that, that caused problems in the winter time. They were pretty much locked in in the winter. Yeah. And uh, I had a lot of old family stories about that too. But So anyway, that was my first recollection of Ellsworth College was, was coming to Caroline Hall for lunch. Sure. And so when I was a student here, See, I went here from 68 to 70, so that was kind of a transition period going from Ellsworth Junior College to Ellsworth Community College. Yeah, right, right. So I, I think I, I enrolled here going to a junior college and graduated <laughs> from a community college. That's kind of how that works. Sure, so. yeah, okay. So just talk about maybe some of your memories of Ellsworth. You know, some, are you still in contact with any classmates? You know, how many students, you know, were with yeah. you? As I mentioned earlier at that time, there were about 1,100 students on campus. And so there are still individuals that, that I run into that were also Ellsworth. Sadly, most of my classmates that went to Ellsworth and I was very good friends with in high school have, have, are deceased now. Yeah. And so that, that's kind of sad. But, but there's still, you know, quite a few others that... Uh, I run into periodically. There were quite a few kids from Eldora that were here at that time. Okay. Most of the students that went to Ellsworth 
I shouldn't say necessarily most, I would say the most. We're probably within a 30 mile radius. However, we had student athletes that came from further away right. and got to be good friends with uh, some of them. And from the Cedar Rapids area, Waterloo. So, but sadly, obviously, it's kind of like when you graduate from high school, everybody scatters. Right, right. Everybody scatters. But there's still some in the Owl Falls area that I run into and remember that they've gone to Ellsworth also. Sure, sure. So just in my time here, you mentioned some of the instructors like Sujin Dar, and I've had the privilege of mm -hmm. talking with him on the phone. Of course, Marty Dittmer, Dick Larson, Phil Rushley, Mr. Rizvi, of course. What are, you know, student, instructor relationships, you know, and now your your friends, you know, how, how did that evolve over the years? And, you know, what are some of your best memories of your instructors oh. and? Well, Rosa Rizvi mentioned him and, and I, I remember taking Rosa for educational psychology and, and my first test, I did not do well at all. I probably got a D or something on it. And, you know, and I went and visited with him and and uh, he was very encouraging. He just kept saying, you will do better, you will do better. And I did, and I think I ended up getting an A or B in the class. So sure. that encouragement was so important. Sujit Dar was also a, an excellent science teacher. And what made these people so great was they were able to relate to students. They didn't put themselves on a pedestal. They were approachable. They were always willing to, to visit, had time to visit with you and help you. And also be encouraging. That is that is so important that we encourage. Right, yes, yes. Listening to you, knowing you like I know you now, very much a mentor image, you know, and I see that in your life, how you, and we'll talk about that in later segments, but you know, how you chose to teach and and the impact that you had on your students. So I'm I'm really excited about that. Not really an athlete. Nope. Nope. Just I enjoy watching sure. athletes, but but I no, I wasn't. You know? Yeah. And I think I think part of that is you, being an athletic, you have to kind of grow up with that. Yep. In addition to having some some natural skills, you don't teach speed. Right. You know, either either you're a fast runner or you're not. Yep. I did dabble a little bit in track uh, when I was had a driver's license. I was at, or actually started out with a school permit. Mm -hmm. I did participate in some track in the spring sure. through my sophomore year. But then um, after my sophomore year, I was getting so involved in FFA and was not only chapter president but also a district officer, and I just didn't have the time. Sure. And my parents were very supportive of my Voag and FFA activities. Yep. When I was a state officer in college, my mother would always, if I was gonna be speaking at a banquet somewhere, she always made sure that my black pants were pressed. And, and of course, FFA dress at that time was very strict. It was black pants, white dress shirt, blue tie, your FFA jacket. Right. And also well shined shoes. Yes, right. And so uh, my mother would always make sure that I was, that those things were ready. Yeah. And. And so I, I've always been grateful that they were supportive of that. Yeah. And, and probably one of the greatest honors 
that I was able to give them in return for that was when I was a state of state officer at the the convention where I was retiring as a state officer, yeah. you would bring your, you would invite your parents to be there and they were brought on stage and you'd present your parents oh. uh, a certificate. And also Governor Robert, Robert E. Ray was there at the time. And in fact, I was assigned to be Governor Ray's escort while he was at that convention that night. Nice. And so I got to introduce my parents to the governor and, they, and he visited, he took time to visit with them. Yeah, that is an honor. And so uh, that was that was quite a a big deal for my parents. Sure. And because uh, the idea of them ever getting to meet a governor was like meeting someone from outer space at that time. Yeah, so right, right. That was um, that was an opportunity for me to give them something sure. in return. Yeah. And there was a, they had their picture in the, the paper with that and at that time, and so that was. A time for them to shine. Yeah, absolutely. So now, and I only know this because I work here now, but FFA now when kids are in college is, is it P-A-S? Well, you can be an FFA member until you're 21. Oh, okay. And it's always been that way. It started out when I was an FFA, uh, which would have been in the um, mid to late 60s, it was called Future Farmers of America, and FFA was just an acronym. Today, that's been changed over time, and it's just simply FFA. Oh, okay. And, and the reason why is they want to impress upon young people that it's not just for kids who are going to farm, that there are a lot of different opportunities in agriculture. And so they did that to make FFA more inclusive. Okay. So uh, that's what it's, what it's known as today. The post-secondary ag student organization that, that exists today was, you know, at the time that I went to Ellsworth in the late 60s, we simply had ag transfer programs. We did not have vocational technical agriculture classes at that time. Okay. That didn't start till around 1970. All right. About a year or two after I graduated from Ellsworth. And so instead of having practical agricultural classes, we basically had preparatory programs that would prepare you to go on to a university okay. for a four-year agriculture program. And so PAS today is a community college organization that's primarily for students that are in uh, some vocational technical program. Good to know. Um, so we're just kind of getting to wrap up this segment, but of course, I, I absolutely love hearing your stories, and I do think you need to write a book. But looking back, how you know did Ellsworth impact your life? And we often hear other people saying, you know, this was the stepping stone. I've heard people say Ellsworth saved my life. Um, you know, I was not prepared for going into a four-year university. You know, how did Ellsworth impact you and kind of mold you to take that next leap, which we'll talk about in the next segment, your continuing your ed with at ISU. Ellsworth to me was a life changer from the standpoint that uh, if it hadn't been from Ellsworth, then graduating from Iowa State would not have been possible and becoming a high school ag teacher would not have been possible. And then of course, later on in my career, teaching it here at Ellsworth, uh, Community College, 
and then going on and being with Iowa State Extension, none of that would have been possible without Ellsworth. Yeah. Because first of all, I would not have, I did not have the grades or the ACT scores that I would be eligible to enroll mm -hmm. in the university. And I think part of it was I, I didn't take school seriously enough, pretty much just to, to get by type thing. And part of it too was I think I was a late bloomer. Mm -hmm. I started school when I was four, which you could do at that time in country schools. And so I graduated when I was 17, started college oh, when I was 17. Sure. And I did not have the maturity at that point in time to uh, take school seriously enough to be able to go to a university right away. So Ellsworth gave me a chance to catch up, yeah. gave me a chance to build some confidence, develop my study skills that would become even more necessary at the uh, university level. Yeah. And so uh, I needed, if you want to call it remedial, <laughs> I don't know if that's a good word, but I, I needed some more prep time right. to get me ready. Right. And so if it hadn't been for Ellsworth, then that wouldn't have been possible. And I probably would have gone out with a high school education and, and got some type of work. Right. Uh, may have ended up farming, who knows, but uh, it certainly would not have opened doors to becoming a, a teacher. Yeah. And then uh, being able to, to do the things was able to do. Yeah. So. Great. Well, Darwin, thank you so much for this. Again, as I always say, I love listening to you. I always learn something from you. Darwin and I are going to continue our conversations in the upcoming weeks. We're going to talk about his time at ISU. We're going to, of course, get into his lovely bride, Deborah, and his family. And then, you know, he never really left the Hardin Butler County area, I would say, you know, and came back to be an amazing servant to Hardin County in so many different ways, both professionally and personally. And then we were going to go through his time as he still is currently the president of the Ellsworth Community College Board of Trustees. And then we, um, in our last segment, which is super special, we're going to talk about your dive into history and seeking out the Ellsworth family. So again, thank you so much. We look forward to continuing this. And thank you everybody for listening to The Greenbelt Project. This is Gwen Grown from the Ellsworth College Foundation. You have been listening to The Greenbelt Project. The show is sponsored by Iowa Falls State Bank, member FDIC, and Hanson Family Hospital. The Greenbelt Project is produced by the Ellsworth College Foundation and Time Citizen Communications. The Greenbelt Project podcast is available on all streaming services and on timecitizen.com.